we've got a choice, a very clear choice. Are we going to be passive recipients and have to buy in other people's innovation? Or are we going to be contributors on the world stage? And there's no, sh no, no doubt in my mind what the answer to that question is, yes? We need to be contributors on the world stage because the price of the innovation that we buy in changes. Hello and welcome to the MTP Connect podcast. My name is Caroline Jewell and I'm joining you on the podcast for the first time today. Today we're going to explore what's involved when you develop a world-first medical treatment here in Australia. What happens when you commercialise a discovery and decide to assign the intellectual property to a research foundation to fund more research? And how do you translate that research to practical applications at the bedside? For this discussion, I'm joined by a very special guest, Winthrop Professor Fiona Wood, surgeon, researcher, and one of the world's leading burns specialists. The professor has dedicated her career to improving the quality of life of victims of burn injury. In 1991, she became the first woman to be trained as West Australia's first female plastic surgeon. She's currently the director of the Burn Service of Western Australia and the Winthrop Professor at the School of Surgery, Faculty of Medicine, at the University of Western Australia. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you very much. Hello. You've been a plastic surgeon, a reconstructive surgeon, and a researcher for over 30 years. Would you like to tell us about why it's important that you wear those two hats? Well, I, I, oh, certainly it's a long time, isn't it? Uh, right from the very beginning, I could see the, uh, the power of science and technology all around us, and particularly in health. And uh, going into the operating theatre as a medical student, I was over, overwhelmed by you know, the science and technology in that, in that environment. And looking around, I thought, well, I'd like to be part of this. I'd like to, be, I'd like to actually contribute here in a way that I'd like to see, how can we look at the borders of knowledge and think about where to next? And I've always been a why kind of person, and I'm a why kind of kid turned into a why kind of old person. And so it was, for me, uh, putting the, the exploration uh, of science and technology to, with the, the clinical practice of surgery was a no-brainer because I thought, how am I going to learn how to do better? It's interesting, recently I was talking to a group of young uh, uh, surgeons and I said, well, when you walk into the operating theatre, you see all these things, like these medical devices and the technology around you. Where did you think it came? comes from Father Christmas, you know, it's in your stocking, well okay, I would like an eye knife in my Christmas stocking this year please, you know, but you know, these things have been actually built and made specifically to solve a problem, now you can be part of that journey, so you can be part of not just using the technology at that coalface, at that sort of at that surgical coalface, but actually looking at the scope and seeing where the gaps are and filling those gaps, that, that is part of your, 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 your life's journey too, if you choose it to be. And obviously that's what took you to discover your incredible spray-on skin. And I'm wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about discovering the world first tissue engineering technology and whether you've got some advice for some researchers out there today who are you know, at, the, at the early stage of their, um, their research. Well, oh, again, that takes me back a long way. I met Marie Stoner, the medical scientist I worked for, with for a long time, uh, in Royal Perth Hospital. And she was in the basement. She was uh, getting the bone marrows ready for the day. She was in that space in the haematology. And I was, uh, at, this, at that stage, I'd already set up a, a system where we sent skin, skin biopsies, I should say, mm -hmm. to Melbourne. And the team in Melbourne would culture the skin cells and then send them back to Perth. 
and I mean it wasn't tenable long term at all because of the obviously the distance and and uh, and I was also fired up with the time the time it took and so I was really uh, interested in reducing the time to get that whole uh, technology back onto the patient and so Maurice and I met in, in the sort of basement of Royal Perth in the uh, the clean labs and we started discussing it started talking brainstorming about what can we do literally how could we take this technology and push it further and of course relationships matter and then funding matters and we got a telethon grant to establish uh, our, our skin lab which was in the children's hospital in Perth and that was in 1993 and Marie was fantastic we sat down and we looked at everything that had been written about growing skin at the time I mean nowadays oh gosh this explosion of stuff on the internet but this is before the internet and so we laid it all out and we worked out in the methodology which people did with what and we worked out how we could actually take bits out of the recipe if you like and uh, tr truncate the time and practical things like if we take the biopsy uh, on admission well rather than thinking about it and taking it the next day we've saved a day so practical things as well as the really high level science things and Marie uh, for her first attempt at growing the skin cell sheets. She did it in 10 days instead of 21 days. But that was as a result of all the work we'd done around that space. And so very quickly it became apparent that we could, we don't know which one of us said it, we could just spray this stuff on. Uh, because we started to see paradoxically that the patients who had more immature sheets that were, I was, I was impatient pushing, no, 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 we need to go now into the operating room looked better than the ones where the sheets were more substantial. So we started doing experiments trying to understand what were we doing. And so understanding the basic science behind it. And that's when it came to the, well, maybe we should just spray this on. And in fact, the nozzle that we use is from an Italian mouth freshener. So we, that we found, we went down uh, the Rockaby Road in Subiaco uh, and we went to the pharmacy and got everything that sprayed, uh, spray nose, spray throat, spray everything you like, and then went to the anaesthetic trolley and got everything that sprayed there and we did a whole series of experiments and we found that this nozzle clipped onto a 5mm standard syringe in the hospital uh, had a 90% plus viability coming through the system colony forming assays indicated that the cells were viable and functional and there was no dead space it was like ridiculously easy and that's the nozzle we still use we now actually don't have to buy the mouth freshener we source them from <laughs> directly and so then the next step was well can we take this in uh, to point of care can we actually take this out of the lab into the operating room can we build a medical device and so I'd say to everyone who's think got an idea and thinking we're talking a young surgeon and a young scientist with no idea how to build a medical device and we drew a picture and a diagram on a piece of paper and we wanted a petri dish, we wanted an enzyme, had to be warmed, and so we needed electronics, we needed the enzyme, we needed a cell filter, we needed the syringe delivery system and the nozzle, and the, this, a scalpel blade to scrape uh, the cells. We needed forceps to hold the skin while we scraped it. Because it's like, uh, we use the skin, it's like uh, analogy, it's like a bread and, butter, bread and butter sandwich, epidermis and dermis, and the butter is the dermal epidermal junction, and what we want is the butter, essentially, as I've got to scrape it off. And so, and so we put all these things together, and we drew it, and we drew the process, and we thought, right, okay, well, how do we do this? Well, we need somebody who knows about electronics, somebody who knows about enzymes, CSL still make the enzyme for us, it's a very specific formulation, and we got as many things off the shelf as we could, like a standard cell filter, like the standard syringes, like a, a disposable scalpel. 
we we bought in the original uh, iteration in the original prototype. We bought uh, 500 for Adson's forceps, which are the types of forceps as a plastic surgeon I use because they're delicate, they're beautiful, and really nice in your hand and balanced. And they didn't fit <laughs> into the into the glass vial where we put the enzyme and heat it up. And so we had to we gave them to you know, the developing world and in there and then bought the tall, skinny, longer ones that are sort of a bit bulkier. But at least we could actually get them in because they're not so fat. But all those things you learn. We put it all through the sterilizer first off. Everything inside, uh, only to discover that the syringes are designed to only be sterilized once and they all went brown and turned to dust. So we had to pull the syringes out. So then we had to pull everything out that was sterilized and so put it in a box next door. So you're learning these things, but we had no idea. And we, but we found lots of friends. Yes, collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Go, Go Medical was a, a company that was in Rockaby Road near the hospital and they, they were making uh, syringe pumps and the syringe drivers had electronics so they helped us with that. You know, the CSL, uh, uh, we had bought, we fund, got funding a lyophilizer and sort of got it housed at CSL over here. And all these different conversations, the people who molded the plastic box, that, that, that molding die is still used in, in the US to, for the kit, you know, for the shape, still the same shape all these years later. And so I'd say you can do anything you like. And someone recently asked me about inspiration. A young kid, uh, one of my uh, colleague's sons, asked me, people say you're inspirational. And I go, okay, this is, where was this going? I go, yeah, no, it almost, and I said to him, yeah, it almost makes me feel a bit awkward, really. <laughs> and, and he goes, well, what is it? Uh, what is inspiration? I thought, oh, God, that's a bit awkward. <laughs> Asking me a really difficult question. And so we had a bit of a discussion, and then we came to the conclusion between myself and this 12-year-old that, in fact, inspiration is listening to a story that makes you feel you can do anything. Yes. Do something or anything. And so, really... I say, Marie and I, we must have listened to stories along the way because a lot of people told us we couldn't and there were less people told us we could, I'd have to say. But we hung out with the ones who told us we could and we kind of ignored the ones who told us we couldn't and didn't waste our energy there. But we must have heard stories along the way that, that made us feel that, well, yes, we can do this. And so I would say, yeah, if you have an idea and, and it's worth it, it sometimes takes a long, long time. But it's worth it. And tell us where you're at now, because after 20 years um, from developing this medical device, it's a really exciting time for your um, medical device and for Burns patients as well. Well, it's interesting. Right at the very beginning, Marie and I was like, we recognised, we went to a meeting in Europe and we recognised what we were doing is different from everyone else. We were isolated, like I said, we're talking pre-internet times, and we were isolated away in Western Australia, and we thought, oh gosh. We are doing something different here. And so we had the, th- the idea that if we commercialised uh, the kit, then we would be able to uh, use the, res- the funds to continue our research, make it more broadly available, and you know, th- it would all tick a lot of boxes. And so we, we had uh, started negotiations. We established a not-for-profit research foundation. It was the Macomb Foundation originally, after my mentor. Now the team have called it the Fiona Wood Foundation. Bit embarrassing, uh, but then uh, we uh, we assigned our intellectual property into the foundation, and then we negotiated with the hospital in the university so that the IP could be in there uh, clean, 
And then, uh, in order to do that, we had an agreement that all use in Western Australian public hospitals was a not-for-profit uh, for the life of the patent, which was a significant period of time, because by the time there's a role, patents are really interesting, whole different rabbit hole, but you can, that stretches way out, so I'll be well and truly retired before that all fades away. And then we, made, we created a company. Because, well, we didn't know we couldn't. No, <laughs> people did say we couldn't. We thought, well, you just put a number on there and you just get a name and off you go. So we called it clinical cell culture because kind of that's what we were doing. And so we called it C3 to begin with. And so that went through a very long, uh, a very interesting and shaggy dog journey. But it, now it is a Vita Medical. It, went, it was taken over by a Vita Medical. And as you alluded to, uh, in, with the support of the Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine and funding the FDA trials, FDA was approved, and the market cap is well over a billion dollars of the company now, and they're really doing well across the world and increasingly uh, building the capability. And for me, I was active CEO right at the beginning and I never took acting from in front of the because I am a surgeon I don't act to be a surgeon I'm a surgeon yeah I don't act to be a scientist and an investigator I am that but I sure as I'm an acting CEO because I'm not one of them because it wasn't my core skill set so and the, the guys would say well take the acting I said no because one day we'll find a good one one find we'll find a real person which of course we did and so both Marie and I are very not frontline in that space at all and haven't been for a very long time. But it's great. it was great to be at the American Burns Association, this, uh, the launch this year, and see the guys doing an extraordinary job. And last year I had a great Christmas present. One of my friends in America sent me a photograph and it was of a little Afro-American girl and she looked very pretty and it's like, yeah, you know, that's a bit odd. And then the next email comes with her burnt face. And he said, this, is, you know, this has been made possible because of humanitarian use at the time of the resale. And it was like, well, that was a great Christmas present. Yeah, so. And I hear that the Christmas present just keeps on giving because now you're receiving royalties yes, furthering your research. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I'd forgotten about the whole business was to, to give our, the royalties, would uh, feed back and give us an opportunity to stabilise. As we all know, the research is really vulnerable between uh, the competitive grant rounds and you know, it's, it's a tough gig. And so to have a, a capacity to keep going on in the lean years is really fundamental to building a research program. And so, yes, I did shed a tear when the cheque came through earlier this year. I was like, whoa, we did it. <laughs> Hello, my name's Jared Gibbs. I'm the Senior Director of the Biomed Tech Horizons program here at MTP Connect. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast series and remind you to make sure to subscribe. That way you get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. And while you're at it, give us a rating and leave a comment. It's easy to do and it really helps other people find our podcasts. Again, thanks for listening and now back to our discussion with Professor Fiona Wood. And you're working on some really interesting research now with the foundation. I mean, it's not just you're taking um, your research in this area to a whole new level, a genetic sort of cellular level and looking at the impact of burns on on people's bodies and what the ramifications are for that. 
Well, yeah, it's a really, really exciting time. I keep thinking, oh, I wish it was 30 years ago for my, my being selfish because I'd like another 30 years in the space myself. But the team is, is grown and we, we do research across the whole continuum from every intervention from the point of injury influences a scar worn for life. And so we've got work in primary care and in, in pre-hospital education and all the way, popula population health, all the way down to the, the understanding the the cellular genetics and all and how then leading that translating that back but uh, and how we can link with anybody around us that's uh, got part of our jigsaw and so certain things that are really interesting is the chemistry of trauma and healing if we understood the chemistry then we could un we had the inf we will have the information because we were going to do this to drive the eye knife with rapid evaporative mass spectrometry so we know exactly what we're cutting through we are working can you tell everyone what the eye knife is oh sorry sorry the eye knife the eye knife is uh, a technique that's come out of Imperial College in London and they're currently in trial in cancer work where you can t they've developed a, the, the library of chemistry understanding so that when you cut through a cancer cell you can tell the difference between a normal cell and a cancer cell so that's in trial around breast cancer currently what I would like to do is put it in the space around trauma so the first step is to build the library uh, trauma uh, acute trauma, burn trauma, non-burn trauma, contamination, and it's basically using mass spectrometry, uh, and rapid, evapor rapid evaporative mass spectrometry, to uh, to be a point of care device. So the 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 end game is to cut through knowing what's what's dead, what's alive, but what will die tomorrow, what's in a in a, a apoptotic pathways, and therefore what can we reverse, and whether they're contaminated or not. And so that's one part of the, the is removing the tissue accurately, safely, reliably. Then it's imaging to understand the surface, the three-dimensional spatial area of the tissue loss. And then it's the self-assembly uh, three uh, nano framework, the frameworks, if you like, with the bio ink printed on with the cells. Cells we can harvest from a non-injured area with our previous medical device we've been using for 20 years and then adding it with bioink in a three-dimensional printing form. And then it gets even more interesting because how do we drive self-organisation? You're your shape and your parents and everybody around you recognise you through life. What's kept you that way? What has kept us in our space? We go wider, we go thinner, but we are recognisable through life. The drivers to self-organisation, I think, are fascinating. And I think my hypothesis is that they're in the nervous system. Because I can tell you, if you're burnt on the back of your right hand, that neurologically we can tell, even when you've no visible scar, we can tell neurologically you have got a redu reduced functional capacity. But I can tell you that the nerve density in the back of your left hand is decreased. And I can tell you that your brain patterning in your cortex it, relative to your hand on the surface is changed. Now, if we understood the, that sort of interface, the skin is a neural receptor. It's our interface with the world. Can we use that knowledge to drive a regenerative pattern, not a scar repair? If an axolotl loses its tail, and you, it will grow back again, if you damage the nerve, it was just a disordered blastocyst, disordered clump of cells. How can we think ourselves whole? Now that's exciting in my headspace. So anybody out there who knows the answer to that, <laughs> call us quickly. Anyway, but, but you know, there's a lots of work. Things like 
then we've linked with understanding the increase in mental illness and cardiovascular disease, diabetes and cancer after burn injury, then we understand that but we don't understand the mechanism. And so does this all tie in together? The stress of the burn injury, the stress of inflammation, and Burns is a pressure cooker of really massive inflammation and it can give us insight into these other secondary, all these other diseases that we can get in a time frame that maybe then We've now started working with our colleagues in immunology, cancer research, etc., because that gives us insight way beyond burns. You know, so as I say, now you know it's really exciting, and this has all been, as I say, made possible because we've got a platform in the foundation that you know it's not huge uh, from a financial perspective, but it gives us time, an opportunity, I should say, to keep going in those lean years when I, I always call the NHMRC resilience training. <laughs> because you, know, you get knocked down, we get up again, and we keep going. But we have an opportunity, an alternative in the me in the in between times. And I've I've heard you talk about the fact that you believe in scarless healing, and so that one day there will be no physical scars from burns. Perhaps, obviously, now you're already moving on to the next phase, which is how the scarring inside the body is affecting our. Our, you know, our living organism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested to know a little bit about your, obviously your collaborator, your partner in crime, um, Marie, and and then obviously your mentor as well, um, Professor McComb. Mm -hmm. How important is it for people to have partners and um, people they can rely on and seek advice from? Yeah, oh, it's it's enormous. I can't under. Uh, overstate that. I mean, Marie and I don't work together anymore. And Marie uh, moved into another phase of her life and with her children and all. And so uh, for the last 11 years, I've been working with a young man called Mark Fear, who's kind of got less young as we've gone along, uh, but, but, but still in touch with Marie. As, uh, and those were really formative and exciting times. And we were able to start building the team. And it's, you know, this, we've got a, a huge clinical team that interfaces with the research team and that do research themselves you know and into digital innovation as well and trying to facilitate our data collection building the biobanks and then this data analysis around that so it's really interwoven this very complex ball of wool and Mark Fear is the scientist I work with now and have done for a long time who is, uh, is terrific uh, and uh, keeps us on the straight and narrow uh, but again, it, it's like building the team of, we've got I think 10 PhD students on the go at the moment in physio, nursing, basic science, chemistry, uh, uh, all sort of, but the, and the cell biology, yeah, I mean the whole range of different things. So what's fascinating to me is we've looked like jack of all trades, master of none I think for a little while because we've got fingers in lots of pies. But basically when you're burnt you've got this journey and so we've gone where if someone's given us funding, we've done that bit of work, right? Now we've done so much work along the journey, it no longer looks like we've got odd little mince pies here and there. We've got a big cake. <laughs> and so Mark drives that side of things. Dale Edgar is another postdoc in physiotherapy who drives our exercise programs, and that's really fundamentally important. In, that's an anti-inflammatory opportunity. You know, exercise is an anti-inflammatory in, in an inflammation sort of paradigm that's going to be fascinating because that again is learnings that can translate into other pathologies. You know, so I could go on all day clearly, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one last question and this is about I guess the the dream for Australian innovators and entrepreneurs um, developing 
um, new medicines, for instance, and new mm -hmm. medical devices, new technologies. You travel a lot around the world and obviously uh, connected in many different countries through treating burns patients as well as working with science collaborators. What do you see are the opportunities for Australian innovators in this space overseas? I am absolutely passionate about making sure we facilitate our homegrown innovators and research absolutely fundamentally. I mean, I could speak uh, with, a, with a level of authority on health, but I think it goes across, across our community. We've got a choice, a very clear choice. Are we going to be passive recipients and have to buy in other people's innovation, or are we going to be contributors on the world stage? And there's no, sh no, no doubt in my mind what the answer to that question is, yes? We need to be contributors on the world stage because the price of the innovation that we buy in changes. Because we can't, be, we can't do everything, absolutely get that. But if we do nothing, the price of everybody's innovation becomes a lot higher than if we're at the table contributing in our own right. And so we have to fundamentally drive this hard. We've got great systems, great platforms. We talk about culture, we talk about you know, needing more, absolutely. But it's beholden upon every one of us to stand up and be counted. Everyone is in this, uh, in this whole space. You can't sit back and say, oh, nobody, oh, I didn't get the funding, or nobody would support me, or, well, don't, no. You stand up and you say, that person didn't support me, or that didn't go well, let me find out where. Life doesn't come and drop in your lap, like with a bunch of flowers. You stand up and you go out and get it. And my mum always used to say, grasp the nettle with both hands and never let it go. And that's what we need to do as Australians. We need to actually grasp that nettle because otherwise we'll be in a very different space and a space I personally don't want to hand over to my kids and my grandkids. I want us to be up there out front and be part of the leading pack. And there's only one place in my, I always say to the, <laughs> I think, you know, there's only one place it's not crowded and that's out front. And what a way to end it. Thank you so much, Professor. We've really enjoyed speaking today with you and thank you for your time. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Professor Fiona Wood for this insightful discussion about her global research and discovery in the area of burns. To learn more about her work in WA and around the world, visit the Fiona Wood Foundation. So we're back bigger than ever in 2020, connecting you with the movers and the shakers in the MTP sector. So stay tuned. You can find us on all your podcast platforms. Please subscribe, tell your colleagues about us, leave a comment and rate us five stars. Until next time.